This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu slash prehealth. Hello, listeners. This is Dean Wirtz, and you are listening to Pen Pals, bringing Philadelphia's stories to you from a distance. And today, we are lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Daniel Corwin, MD, MSCE, and CIRP scholar. He is the Associate Director of Research for the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also known as CHOP, and an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and if you want to introduce yourself, where you're from, where, where you went to school, things like that, and the research you've been doing, Dr. Corwin. Sure, and it's a pleasure to be with you, Dean. Um, so one other, and it's a lot of titles to read, but one other title to throw in there, um, my primary clinical practice is emergency medicine, so I am an emergency medicine attending physician at CHOP. Um, and a lens through which I look at um, my research, which is concussion, is that of an emergency medicine provider. So in the emergency department, we are often seeing children pretty shortly after their injury. Um, So a lot of my work is trying to figure out how do we better diagnose concussion in that setting in the emergency department shortly after the injury, which might be a little different than someone who sees a child, you know, three, four, five days out following the injury. Um, And then what tools can we use to help better predict right after we see a patient with a concussion, who is going to get better in a few days and who do we not really need to worry about? and who might take weeks to months to sometimes even years to recover and who needs a much closer eye and more targeted therapies. Um, That actually is my research as well. Um, Just about me, I I grew up in upstate New York. I'm from Syracuse, which is where all my sports loyalties lie. Um, But I've been in Philadelphia for a fair amount of time. I did my um, pediatrics residency, my pediatric emergency medicine fellowship, both at CHOP. So I've been at CHOP now for 10 years. Awesome. And um, if we can talk about, since a lot of your research has to do, or a big bulk of it has to do with in- injury in adolescence and pediatric medicine, could you explain to our listeners what exactly a concussion is and other head injuries that you are looking at in researching? Yeah, so it's a great question and one we could probably spend an entire hour talking about of what is a concussion, um, because it's as much a philosophical question as it is a scientific one. Um, even in 2020, we don't have a, here is the 100% clear diagnosis of concussion. It is a diagnosis that relies heavily on subjective symptom reporting. So um, there needs to be some kind of injury, um, so some impact to the head, and whether that is how we often think about concussion, a sports-related injury, um, or recreation-related injury, or something like a fall, or a motor vehicle accident, or an assault. Some injury to the head, some trauma to the head. And then a transient alteration in neurophysiology is the definition that is um, put forward by a um, or several consensus groups. And the problem with that transient alteration in neurophysiology is there are a lot of ways to define it. So classically, we've relied on symptoms. And I think most people could probably name a few what we would call classic concussion symptoms. So things like headache, vision problems, dizziness, sensitivity to light, sensitivity to noise, nausea. And there are cognitive symptoms, so things like feeling foggy, feeling like your brain is slowed down, difficulty concentrating or difficulty remembering. 
There can be sleep symptoms, so difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, sleeping more than usual. And then probably the least thought of symptom groups, uh, emotional symptoms. So following concussion, we see things like emotional ability where the mood's kind of all over the place. We see anxiety, we see depression, we see nervousness. And that kind of cohort of symptoms plus an injury is generally what we define as concussion. What we've been learning is there are other ways to mark these neurophysiologic changes that we see, whether that's physical exam techniques or more advanced um, either neuroimaging or other kind of device-based measures that we can certainly talk about if you're interested in. Um, concussion is a type of traumatic brain injury and there's a spectrum of traumatic brain injury. So there are mild traumatic brain injuries, which concussion is one type of, which is an injury to the head that has some transient change, um, all the way up to severe traumatic brain injuries. And those have classically been defined by a Glasgow Coma Scale score or a GCS score which is really related to how you present. And it's, are you, um, is your alertness, your mental status of a normal level? The problem with that class classification, mild, moderate, severe, is that they don't really do much for prognostication and saying how you're gonna recover. So you could have a mild traumatic brain injury that has an impact on your life is really anything but mild. So you had a paper here that was talking about um, the trajectories of or the recovery trajectories in pediatric female concussion, um, are, is there a difference in female versus male of the recoveries of concussions or brain injury? Yeah, it's a great question. And it gets into a, a more broader question of, is a concussion a, a single diagnosis or is it a diagnosis made up of a heterogeneous group of diagnoses? And the more we learn about concussion, the more classifying them all together is kind of like classifying cancer altogether and studying cancer as an entity rather than leukemia or brain tumor or however you want to separate it out. So there are certainly multiple phenotypes of concussion that we're learning. And along the same vein, there are different groups that respond different, differently to the injury. So um, the early research into those groups and males versus females is certainly one of them. The other groups that behave differently after an injury um, older children versus younger children and adults versus teenagers. So age, there are certainly different trajectories when we look at those children with a history of concussion versus those who have never had a history of concussion. And when we look at certain comorbidities, so things like having a history of migraine headaches, having a history of mood disorders, they all affect recovery. Mm -hmm. Specifically, when we look at males versus females, we find that female children tend to have longer recovery trajectories. There are a few things we don't know about that recovery trajectory. And one, and hopefully I'm shining a light on as much as we know about concussion, we don't know about concussion and there's so much to be learned, which is why it's a really exciting topic to research. But defining recovery is tricky. So just as subjective as asking someone what their symptoms are, it's subjective to say that when their symptoms are either gone or back to what they were before the injury is a recovery. There are children who might have lingering symptoms who are totally fine and go about their daily activities and you know, aren't significantly impacted by them. There are children whose symptoms have returned to baseline or have gone away who still are impacted by the injury. So when we say recovery trajectories are different, mostly we're saying the symptom trajectories are different, which is related, but probably not the exact same thing. 
In females, we see that there's a higher reported number of symptoms. Um, and there have been a lot of questions as to why that may be. The initial thought was, do females just report symptoms more than males, which could be, but has been disproved in some other studies. Um, interestingly, when you take the symptom battery of concussions um, and hand it out to high school students and think about the things we just talked about, so um, not just headache and dizziness, but difficulty falling asleep, feeling fatigued, feeling nervous, feeling anxious, think about yourself as a 15 or 16 year old, you're probably gonna have one of those symptoms. So when studies have done that, and there have been groups that take that questionnaire and just hand it out to your normal high school kids, um, over 50% endorse at least one of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. Girls more so than boys. So the possibility of do females report more symptoms than males remains, although that's probably not solely it. Is there something about the physiology of girls versus boys after the injury that their injuries are different um, they have different specific symptoms. They have different signs on a physical examination um, that may need to be teased apart. Or what we interestingly found in that study is, do they just get different care? Which is a probably not surprising um, disparity, but one that is modifiable. And in that specific study you're referring to, which was done uh, by Natasha Desai, who, has, um, who was a sports medicine fellow at CHOP, has now gone on to Columbia. Uh, but what she found was that if you adjusted for the time between injury and showing up at the specialty sports medicine clinic where we evaluated all these patients, the recovery trajectories were the same. So rather than females reporting more symptoms or having different trajectories or having different physiology, it might just be that they weren't getting the same care as males, it's taking them longer to get referred to the specialist. And if they were referred to the specialist in the same amount of time frame and started the care that a specialist provides, they might have the same recovery as males. Oh, okay, gotcha. And um, looking at age and like the plasticity of the growing body and how do you think that affects um, a concussion or a brain injury? I know you touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And I think I would look at it as kind of two separate questions that people are thinking about. The first is, you know, in the acute injury, how does the seven-year-old brain change compared to the 13-year-old brain, change compared to the 21-year-old brain. Um, and I think probably the question of greater interest that we have yet to really have any data on is what are the long-term effects of that? So um, if it takes you know, a teenager slightly longer than a college-age student to recover from an acute concussion, that's important. But you know, if it's a week later, it's, we're talking about a week, is, is it possible that a developing brain, so the brains of all those age groups are developing, the brains of college students are still developing as well, but in a school-aged child, a seven, eight, nine-year-old whose brain definitely has a lot of years of development left is the long-term trajectory impacted by a concussion. And that's a big, we don't know. Um, so does a single concussion cause any long-term impact um, years down the line? We don't know. Um, we do know that the teenage group does have a little bit of a longer recovery trajectory compared to the school age group but there are a lot of factors that go into it. The cognitive demands of a teenager are certainly different than a school-aged child. So you can imagine kind of getting back into the school um, mindset for a 15-year-old is very different than it is for a, a seven, eight-year-old. Um, so a lot we don't know, um, particularly around that question of the permanent impacts of a single concussion. Um, what we do know is that in children compared to adults, the recovery trajectories are longer. Um, more children end up with symptoms longer after the injury. And if you kind of look at a curve of time from injury and recovery, there's a huge drop off where within the first month, about 70% of children 
will have their symptoms come back to normal. But then there's this huge tail in that graph mm -hmm. where once you get to a month, you're, there's a strong likelihood that you'll still have symptoms at three months and five months and seven months. Mm -hmm. So there's this huge group. Um, and 30%, when you look at there, are probably around 2 million concussions in children a year is not an insignificant number. A huge group of children who take a really long time to recover. So well, we don't know the permanent impact of an injury, a single injury is certainly impactful when we're talking about months to potentially years of recovery time. I think you also brought up something really interesting earlier on there about how it can be possibly a mix of the internal and external stresses, whereas an older child or 15-year-old will have more stresses and more things that they, or I, I, your cognitive like stresses and things that you have to do and then where you can almost go back to the opposite way in an adult where they're almost jaded by the life that they're living, where could it be that they're just so used to what they're doing that it's easier for them to reacclimate? Whereas in your teen years, you're having so many new experiences, you're also expected to handle things at a certain level when compared to a younger child. Possibly. And I will qualify that by saying um, I do not do any research in adult adults. So while we do go up to college age um, children in a lot of our studies, um, talking about people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, um, that is not anything we research. And clinically, practicing in a pediatric emergency department, I don't see adults. Um, so I don't know how qualified I am to comment on, you know, the trajectory of someone who's 40 and has a job. Um, we know it's impactful. Um, we know they tend to get better more quickly, but the factors behind that, I'm not sure we have a great sense of. But um, you're queuing in on something very important, which is the cognitive and emotional, in addition to the physical demands of being a teenager in 2020, are really, really tough. Um, and, you know, for a lot of us providers um, who are in a different generation, it's hard to put ourselves in that mindset. Um, but when you think about the cognitive workload of a teenager in high school who is getting ready to apply for college and has things like SATs and other college entrance exams on the horizon and trying to excel in school, when you think about the emotional impact of being a teenager, and I know you had mentioned COVID and we certainly can get into that, but um, the just emotional stress of the teenage years and then um, for athletes, the physical demand of re-entering a sport. So there's a lot that goes into recovery from concussion. And it is certainly more complicated than I think a lot of people are aware of. And one of our, our big jobs is to make um, our community at large aware of the impact that concussions can have. Um, again, that mild and mild traumatic brain injury, I think, does a disservice to the injury itself. And for many children, like I said, is anything but mild. And have they done any studies on possibly the recovery of the stress of an athlete at the kind of a very big turning point in their career because in high school, that's when all the scouts are coming in. And we had uh, Dr. Fagenbaum come in and talk to Penn, who was, uh, he was a high school athlete, got an injury his junior year and all the division one uh, scouts pulled out. So does that affect possibly the emotional effects of head injury later on based off of like what that head injury means to their future? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a great question. Not specifically around, you know, athletes who are looking towards a college career, but in general, the psychosocial impacts of stress, anxiety in general around concussion are huge. And there's a huge interplay there. So having pre-existing anxiety or depression or intercurrent anxiety and depression as you recover from the injury definitely impacts your recovery um, and definitely slows the recovery. Children who have pre-existing anxiety and depression take longer to recover. 
And those with post-injury high scores of anxiety and depression are also in the longer recovery group. And that interplay there is something um, from a physiologic and basic science standpoint um, is still trying to be uncovered. Is it that the injury itself induces these mood symptoms, that there's actual um, structural changes to the brain in the areas that control the mood symptoms? Are these conditions that a child was going to have anyway that are now unmasked by the injury? And we see that in other conditions in pediatrics where you know, a child who's going to go on and have seizures has it unmasked by a febrile illness or a viral illness. Um, it could be a similar, um, a similar phenomenon in concussion where you have the injury and it unmasked something that was going to happen anyway. Um, but stress, huge interplay with recovery. And when we look at the management of concussion, also huge interplay. So the dogma for how we recover from concussion is a pendulum that has swung in a lot of directions over the last two decades. So when I was growing up, and we'll go to this end of the pendulum, it was you got hit in the head, you got your ball rung, you suck it up and you go back in and you keep playing. Um, and that turns out not so hot. So we then about 15 years ago took that pendulum and swung it all the way the other direction and said, we are terrified of long-term impact to brains of children there started to become information about CTE and professional athletes. Are we doing this to children? So we said, you had a completely rest, no school, no phones, no screens, no nothing until your symptoms are completely gone. And if you think about the validating things of a teenager and phones and screens and school and sports are all validating things. Not surprisingly, that induced a lot of mood symptoms. So then, well, your symptoms are still there because mood symptoms are a symptom of concussion. So you need to rest more. And it created the cycle that um, a researcher in DC, Mark DeFazio, actually coined the activity restriction cascade, where you're symptomatic, we tell you to rest more, you get more symptomatic because you have nothing but your symptoms to focus on, and it's cycles and cycles. So we've brought that back to now a modified version of rest, where we don't want children getting exposed to future head impacts, but we want them doing some activity to mitigate those mood symptoms that definitely can develop. And again, something that has been hugely affected by COVID, when we talk about underlying rates of mood disorders, when we talk about dealing with an injury and inducing mood disorders, things that um, are really impactful to the recovering concussed youth. Okay, interesting. And when you were saying that to give activities to uh, individuals undergoing um, concussion symptoms, what would be those activities be? Like paper mache? Like what would they be? Like things like looking at screens that kind of involvement are you still going away from screens but finding activities to... yeah and this is where the concussion is not a single injury part comes into um, play pretty significantly it has to be individualized to the person so when we look on a physical exam of someone with a concussion they have a lot of issues with eye tracking so if you ask them to look rapidly back and forth which is called saccadic eye movements mm -hmm. that can provoke symptoms when you ask them to fix their eyes on something and move their head around it's called stability or the vestibulocular reflex. That's the thing that when you're jogging around, lets you not feel like your head's going to explode. That kind of invokes some symptoms or provokes symptoms. And um, when you look at binocular convergence, which is focusing on something close to your face, like a book, that can provoke symptoms. Not universal that you have all of those. You may have none of those. You may have one or two of those. So that's where targeted recovery plays a role. So there are two aspects of the brain that require some rehabilitation. But for the kids who are better in a couple of weeks, probably just happens naturally. Some other kids need a little bit of support. One is the autonomic nervous system. So that part of the nervous system that allows you to 
stand up from sitting and not pass out, although some people get a little um, vasovagal symptoms where they get orthostatic as they stand up, that seeing stars in front of your eyes. But that nervous system is affected by concussion. Um, and rehabbing that is exercise. So we found that subthreshold, meaning not exercising to the point where you're starting to get symptoms, but right below that point, exercise in the first week after injury can improve recovery times. So again, taking it from you need to sit in a dark room doing nothing until you're totally better to now actually we want you moving around a little bit. And that getting your heart rate up, getting increased blood flow to your brain has a positive impact on recovery. Um, there was a randomized trial that came out about a year and a half ago by John Luddy, who is um, a sports medicine physician in Buffalo, who's done a lot of work on exercise therapy that found that randomizing children to that sub-threshold aerobic exercise in the first week of injury compared to just a stretching program improved recovery times. So, so yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, was that a kind of paradigm shift from sitting in a dark room, only sleeping, going to exercising when the first week of the injury, has that been met with open arms, that change in kind of regime, or is it still in the beginning phases of implementing that kind of... Middle phases, and it's a great question, and you know, how do we shift, because you were talking about two 180-degree turns here over the last 20, 30 years. Um, rest makes sense when you think about what's happening in the brain, and cognitive rest of having someone sit in the dark room wasn't born out of nowhere. It was a, a great hypothesis, what happens in the brain after a concussion, and there are lots of studies that look at the cellular changes in the brain. You have a decreased energy supply, you get some constriction of the blood vessels going to the brain, while at the same time you have an increased demand. So um, for um, you guys who are probably studying this right now, um, your sodium potassium ATP pump, um, those are upregulated following a traumatic brain injury in animal models. So you have a higher demand, you need more ATP, you're getting less of it because you're getting less blood flow to the brain. So it makes sense to try to reduce the demand of the brain, slow the brain down, rest, to be able to meet the supply you're getting. Um, but it turns out when you actually do that in practice, it doesn't work. So um, once we started studying it in a randomized fashion, and I think the first randomized trial of cognitive rest was published in 2015, when the paradigm started to shift. So I think there are certainly still some people who kind of stick to a, a strict rest paradigm. I think most, certainly most concussion specialists are now encouraging some early return to some activity. Um, and that some needs to be qualified. And again, um, thinking about individualizing and targeting therapy, there are some kids who cannot tolerate activity. And we don't want kids going, you know, from a two out of 10 on a symptom scale to 10 out of 10 by trying to do these activities. We want it to be graduated in its recovery. Um, but all of these rehabilitation exercises, so aerobic rehabilitation, the other one I didn't talk about was vestibular rehabilitation. So that eye tracking system, looking back and forth between two objects, fixing your eyes on something and moving your head around, looking at close print can actually be rehabilitated with specific and specialized physical therapists who are called vestibular therapists. So those kind of activities, um, rehabilitation aerobically, rehabilitation vestibularly can impact recovery. Awesome. And uh, to backtrack a little bit, uh, back yeah. to kind of the, um, the rehabilitation of the source of the injury. Do you find that there's a difference in the recovery trajectories between, let's say, an athlete who gets a hit head injury almost accidentally? Like it, it's not an intended course of action, but let's say it's a group of kids 
that know they're doing something stupid and they they somehow bonk their head on the concrete or something like that where they know that there's a little bit more of a risk of them hurting themselves even though there's that sense of invulnerability as a child but there's still that impending danger that what i'm doing might lead to some sort of bad injury so the the accidental versus um, incurred risk i don't know has been teased out but the mechanism is an important question um, and a lot of our research has traditionally been in sports related concussion and you know it's the in the population that our specialists have easiest access to when we think about concussion, most people think about them sports related. Um, there's a not insignificant proportion of concussions that happen that are not sports related. Um, and when we talk about those mechanisms, those are generally things like falls, motor vehicle collisions, and then assaults. Um, when we start looking at those different populations, specifically looking at car accidents, motor vehicle collisions, and then assault related concussions, we find that the latter two have different recovery trajectories. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, whether that is the intent of um, the person going in or difference in the mechanism of someone tackling you or someone hitting your head as you go up for a header is a very different physiologic mechanism than being in a car and being hit by another car. Um, there's something about those injuries though that are different and they recover differently. Um, and it's something that we're learning more about. Um, we recently just, um, had a presentation at the American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference talking about assault-related concussions where we found um, those children who were assaulted took longer to recover than the sports-related concussions, but also received very different care um, than the sports-related ones. And again, thinking about the male-female difference where when you take out the time to a specialist, a lot of those differences went away. Maybe there's something about the recovery trajectories about the non-sports-related ones where a concussion is maybe not the first thing on someone's mind. Mm -hmm. If you're in a car accident, you're looking for a lot of things compared to someone specifically comes in because they were playing football, got hit in the head, and the coach, the trainer, and the parents are all worried about concussion. You're presented with a different paradigm in front of you. Got it. And do you think that also has something to do with the impending danger? Like, let's say you got a concussion because you got hit by the lineman, and the lineman does not exist in everyday life. They only exist on that football field, whereas with a car injury or an assault, an assaulter or someone that will T-bone your car, it can exist in many more situations throughout your day or is there not enough? I don't, I don't know that's necessarily that. I think it's more just physiologically what happens biomechanically to your body when you're in those different situations. Um, and we're talking about the ultimate end of the brain shaking within the skull but how the brain shakes in the skull is very different if you're being tackled in a football field um, versus a fist goes to your head versus um, a car hits a car. They're all different forces and impacts. And now we're getting into bioengineering, which is certainly not my specialty, um, but our, um, our Center for Injury Research and Prevention has a lot of wonderful bioengineers who study this. And, um, the researchers at SERP were actually some of the thought leaders in car seat safety. Um, when we look at rear facing car seats that are now the standard, um, and those studies were being published in the 90s. Um, some of the thought leaders were present at SERP. So it's a really cool study to be a part of, or a center to be a part of, I should say. Um, but yeah, I think it's more just biomechanics of what is the impact, what is the injury, um, and how does that physiologically change, or is, does it? Um, and I think there's more research needed to be done on those. Got it. So going back to your specialty, now that we are going through a pandemic, how do you think that the demographics of the head injuries are changing? how it's changing the trajectories of recovery? 
Yeah, it's a great question and something we definitely need to dive in um, in a lot more depth. When we just look at the overall numbers of concussion, there were certainly fewer concussions this past summer than we're used to seeing in summertime. And summertime and early fall are is the high season of concussion. So kids are outside, kids are playing, and then you get into preseason training for fall sports, a lot of which didn't happen this summer and early fall. So we're seeing way fewer concussions than we're used to seeing. Um, the recovery and the demographics of those are not some things we've looked at, or not things we've looked at, but two very important things that very possibly have changed. So that ratio of sports to non-sports related concussions likely has changed, especially over the summertime, where there are just less kids outside playing sports, but more people were traveling potentially in cars. Um, so, and then kids were just inside doing some kids being pent up inside silly things that could potentially lead to, lead to injuries. So maybe we're seeing less sports related concussions. Um, and then those, all those things we talked about with recovery of early return to some activities. Part of that is early return to the school setting because of the social benefit of being at school, um, being able to be outside and, you know, move around aerobically or even being on a gym and a stationary bike or walking on a treadmill. A lot of those things kids don't have access to. And then we talked also about the impact that stress and anxiety and depression can all have on concussion. Certainly we're seeing higher incidences of those across um, care settings in children since the pandemic started, not surprisingly. So I think our presumption is there's probably a change in recovery patterns, likely for the worse. We just haven't, we just don't have enough data to, to prove that. Um, the other possibility is a lot of the cognitive demands on children of school and you know, cognitive, cognitive exertion school can stress the brain have been taken away, um, particularly in the spring and summer. Less so now, but in the spring and summer when schools are virtual and then in the summertime, um, it's just a different recovery trajectory. And we know that from prior research of kids who get concussed in the summer, just have different recovery curves than kids who get concussed during the school year, because you're taking out one of the really strongly symptom provoking elements of concussion, which is being in the school setting and having to push your brain. So there are certainly children who historically get injured in the summer are doing okay, but they're doing okay because their brain hasn't been stressed and then they go back to school in September and it's a boatload of symptoms and it's a, a tougher time. And I would kind of equate that to you sprain your ankle and you are just rolling around in a wheelchair never walking on your foot. And then out of nowhere, you're asked to walk on your foot and you start feeling pain. And it's similar to the children who are injured in the summer. Got it. Okay. I like the analogy. And, um, Let's see here. So otherwise, so how do you think that the social media generation and like all this technology is affecting both head injuries, knowledge about head injuries, and now that everyone is their own doctor through WebMD, like saying like, do you think it's educating people in the sense that they are more aware and a little bit more like more risk averse? Or do you think it's making people think that they know more than they do? Yeah, and I, you know, technology is always a double-edged sword. Um, there are, you know, myriad benefits to the techno technological advances we've had in concussion diagnosis and recovery. Um, and awareness is certainly one of them. And it's way easier to spread the word in 2020 about anything through social media, but through other outposts as well, um, to have the community aware, but also the places where children are recovering. So schools, having schools as partners in concussion recovery is huge. And it took a little bit for schools to start buying into this idea of graduated returns activity, which now is pretty standardized, I think, across most schools in 2020. And 
technology, social media help a ton there. Um, when you look at the technological advances we've seen in terms of monitoring children, so smartphone apps weren't a thing 15 years ago. We now have the ability to buy smartphone apps, and this is another line of research that our group, Minds Matter, um, is pioneering, um, led by Doug Weeb, who's an epidemiologist at Penn. You can, and he did this, make a smartphone app that has a list of concussion symptoms and have children check in on the app multiple times a day. And rather than only assessing their symptoms once a week or once every other week at a clinic visit, you now get multiple time points a day to see how they're doing and to be able to influence their trajectory. Um, and the other potential there is when we talk about all these rehabilitation strategies, they're right now done in the setting of a physical therapy office. Um, our sports medicine specialists are starting more and more to create home programs of those exercise therapies, but the internet, um, I think we've all learned a ton from the, fir the forced um, virtual visits that a lot of specialists had to do because of um, the pandemic. So being able to implement and guide those um, rehabilitation strategies virtually compared to having to go to an office is gonna increase access, hopefully reduce some disparities. Again, coming back to that study of it took girls longer than boys to recover, possibly because they were not getting in to see the specialists as quickly. If the specialists now are now virtual, if the prescriptions and therapies they're prescribing are now being able to be done at home, maybe we can eliminate some of those disparities. So there are certainly a lot of positives to social media. Um, there are always negatives to really every technological advance. We see that too, but there's a lot of potential that the technological advances we've seen in the last few years have for concussion recovery. Got it. And even in, aside from uh, concussion recovery, do you think it's also helping uh, realize symptoms of concussions as they happen? And then you're having more reported cases because people are like, oh, I hit my head. Let me check. Oh, yeah, I definitely have a concussion. Let me go in to a uh, medical center. Yeah, and when you look at the incidence of concussion over the last decade, it has steeply risen. Um, and there is always the question of, is that because there are more actual concussions or are we just catching more because there's a lot more awareness? Um, and I think a lot of that came about 10, 15, 20 years ago when we started to see chronic changes in NFL players and it raised the concern for everyone. Um, it's now a way more recognized entity. It's probably both. We're probably seeing more actual concussions, but certainly we're diagnosing more. Um, patients themselves, parents are more aware, but providers are more aware too that concussion is an injury and an injury to be taken seriously. Um, but we still have work to do there of um, really allowing all medical providers as well as our community understand the potential serious impact of a concussion. And again, that mild and mild traumatic brain injury does, a, does us a little bit of a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that, <laughs> that sums it up very well. And uh, I don't know how I didn't ask you this, but um, how did you get into pediatrics and like concussion work and brain? Sure. Yeah, so um, two different stories. Um, pediatrics, um, so my dad is a pediatrician, which is probably what led me to become a doctor. It is what led me to become a doctor. Um, and I was in New York for medical school and was dead set against pediatrics. You know, I wanted to carve my own path. And then I did my pediatrics rotation and, you know, you have a crappy day and at the end of it you see a cute smiling toddler and it's hard not to have that put a smile on your face and ultimately I found the potential impact I would have as a provider to be so large in children and um, you know it's we call high risk high reward in terms of the emotional toll of having a, a severely ill or severely injured child in front of you 
is heavy, um, but the potential to impact the life of a severely ill or severely injured child is just incredible. Um, so pediatrics and specifically pediatric emergency medicine, where I get to see the whole spectrum of pediatric disease from people who are bringing their children in for a fever or an ear infection to really severe and complicated traumas. We get to see it all. Um, and every day I have such joy going into work and I'm really so honored that in their most difficult moments, families allow me into their world and into their lives. Um, so clinically, that's what led me to pediatric emergency medicine. I love my specialty um, and cannot imagine practicing anything else. Um, in terms of concussion research, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in upstate New York where lacrosse is king. And I had a close friend in high school who was the star of our lacrosse team um, who had a concussion um, in the playoffs of our senior year and was um, sent right back in um, because we're talking late 90s and we didn't know that much. Mm -hmm. um, and it had, had a really prolonged recovery time. So that was always in the back of my mind. And when I came to the CHOP, um, there had just been started an initiative to try to standardize concussion care across various care sites. So... Um, most children with a concussion present to their primary care doctor. Some end up in specialty care as the first line. Some end up in the emergency department where I practice or an urgent care center and trying to make all those places, which are in one giant care network, which is CHOP, provide the, the same care. So you're getting the same care whether you show up to the emergency department, your pediatrician or a specialist. Um, and that had just kicked off when I was starting residency. Um, so it was good timing and I read about it and it was interesting research um, and I have had some absolutely wonderful mentors that have guided me along the way and um, allowed me to really thrive in the role of um, physician scientist. So our program is run by um, a sports medicine physician, Christina Master, who's a pediatrician um, specializing in sports medicine and clinically practices pediatric sports medicine. And then you're talking about all the engineers available at the Center for Injury Research and Prevention. And the co-leader of that program is Christy Arbergast, who's a bioengineer, um, so not a clinician, but has done some outstanding work into um, the biomechanics of head injury and concussion. Okay. Um, and they together have designed this really cool multidisciplinary research team that spans their specialties as well as other clinical specialties. We have epidemiologists, um, psychologists, all the physical therapists. So really cool and exciting team to be a part of. Mm, gotcha. And do you think that it was just interesting hearing you say where lacrosse is king and you were playing in your senior year? Do you think, I don't know how easy it'll be to answer this question because you don't have a perspective of not being like this, but since you were an athlete uh, in your youth and maybe still are, do you think it makes it easier for you to relate to these patients that you're saying a lot are coming from sports injury that you can understand their frame of reference and what's going on in their mind? Interestingly, I was not a very good athlete when I was a teenager. Um, but um, I started running a lot when I was um, in college and in medical school to the point that I had multiple stress fractures um, when I was a medical student, actually one in each foot, um, one that led, led over into my intern year. So when I was an intern, I was crutching around the halls of CHAP because um, I had a pretty severe stress fracture in uh, my left foot. Um, so I certainly understand overuse injuries. Mm. And um, when I talk to kids about recovery from head injury, the idea of pushing yourselves up to the point of having symptoms, but not trying to push through symptoms to the point that you're um, significantly more symptomatic is something that rings true to me because I was addicted to the um, the runner side, didn't want to stop running and ran through those injuries to the point that you know a, a stress reaction that probably could have been recovered with a few weeks of rest turned into a fracture that needed months of rest. Um, so I get that, um, but I think we're 
all looking for a way to be able to identify with our patients. Um, and the fun part about um, pediatrics is we get to care for children across the developmental spectrum. Um, so certainly the need of one 17 year old is something different than another 17 year old, but the recovery um, demands of a seven year old are so different than a 14 year old and makes it fun and exciting and also challenging. Um, and I'm lucky in that I get to be the diagnoser in the emergency department. I'm not the one who is following these children through recovery, like a primary care pediatrician or a sports medicine specialist. They have the really hard job of being able to, um, tailor all these management techniques to the patient in front of them. And the guideline that you have for the seven-year-old is so different than the one for the 15-year-old. So different demands, different things in their daily lives, and a lot for them to be able to keep an eye on. Wow. Well, I mean, your passion throw shows through your experience and your expertise, Dr. Corwin, and uh, that, was, that was amazing. And you answered all these questions so clearly and concisely. It was hard for me to give follow-up questions because you cleared up everything within your answer. So uh, I appreciate that. I love talking about concussion, as you can hear. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, for anyone out there trying to be a doctor, uh, do you have any words of wisdom for them? Um, I have an amazing job. Like I said, I could not imagine doing anything else. Um, it certainly is a lot of work to get there. So um, for all of the post-baccalaureate students who are about to apply to medical school, you know, there is a journey ahead of you. But each stage is fun. Each stage is exciting. Um, and I have just such a rewarding job. I really can't, can't speak highly enough about what I get to do every day. Um, it really is a, a cool um, and exciting honor. Yeah, well, we really appreciate having you here. And those words are very kind. And um, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us, listeners. And I hope you have a great rest of whatever you're doing. <laughs>